I decided to do a Farmers in the Tetons trip. We pulled together on food, probably bring a lot of our food with us, or at least the essential items, like we always bring, you know, a bag of meat out there with us and things like that. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Cows, pigs, and chickens. Oh my. Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 66. Bruce Hennessy has spent quality adventure time all over the globe. The Tetons, Himalayas, Caribbean, and of course, all around Camel's Hump. And sure, we'll talk about all that, but most of the next hour is about life and business on Maple Wind Farm in Richmond and Huntington. Wintry Mix is Mad River Valley, Waterbury, and Stowe locals and visitors. Recorded from above my garage in Waterbury Center. Half skiing, half not skiing. The email is alex at wintrymixcast.com. The Instagram is at wintrymixcast. The pod voicemail is 802-560-5003. Ask a question. Make a statement. Five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are appreciated, and I'll owe you a beer in the wild. And if you'd like to step up from Freeloader, visit patreon.com slash wintrymixcast to toss me a buck or two that I'm donating locally on behalf of the pod listeners and I'll send you a sticker. Stand by for the goods. The Wintry Mix Podcast is supported by the town and country on the mountain road in Stowe. The sign out front is big and historic, but the bar, restaurant, and menu are all new. Food truck inspired flavors and ever-changing specials. Warm fireplace and prices that bring in the locals. And you can enjoy Opry without your kids driving you nuts thanks to their massive family game room. The Kaufmans do it every week or two. Follow them on Instagram for all the announcements at Town & Country Stowe, Town & Country Bar Stowe, or visit townandcountrystow.com for all the details or to book a remodeled room you can park right in front of. We'll see you at the town and country. The lodging's in the front, the party and the parking is in the back. Bruce Hennessy, welcome to the studio. Your parking situation might have felt odd to you, but it was better than the last guy. That's that's all good. Uh, I have to say, I get stuck all the time out on the farm, but this was a, this was unexpected in a plowed driveway. Bruce, we've got you in here because another listener, Matt Charles, suggested I reach out to you because yeah, you ski and have a background in winter sports. But there's a lot more going on there. What were you doing today before you got here? 
went out in the morning and did our morning chores, which is uh, rebedding our pigs. We have about 40 hogs in, in our winter barn and about 40 cows, actually mostly yearlings and, and 18-month-old steers and heifers. And this is Maple Wind Farm. This is what I'm most curious about. Telemark skiing, sure, we can talk about that. I sure. guess we will a little bit, but keep going. The farm. Right. So the farm is Maple Wind Farm. We're a diversified livestock, uh, pasture-based livestock farm in Huntington and Richmond, Vermont. And we produce 100% grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork and poultry. Um, poultry is our biggest item right now. We're... We do broiler chickens on on pasture. We do uh, layer hens for eggs, and we also do turkeys, some of them non-GMO and some of them organic. And we have a small USDA poultry processing plant. Were you born into this, or did you choose this? No, we chose it, yeah. we, uh, My wife and I, uh, Beth Whiting, and I chose to start farming back in 1999, and this coming year will be our 20th season. And Maple Wind Farm, because I don't farm, I have all these preconceived notions of farming, which are probably all very inaccurate. <laughs> right. I assume, oh, there's a farm, but your footprint is kind of checkered, correct, geographically? Yes, we're all over the place. We, um, Our home farm is in Huntington. We have about 137 acres up there uh, at a hilltop farm, um, way in the southern reaches of Huntington, which is actually a little town called Hanksville very close to Route 17 that heads over Apcap to Mad River Glen and Sugarbush and, and those ski areas over there. Um, but then our center of operations is now on the old Andrews Farm, which is in Richmond, just outside of the town of Richmond. And that's on 189 acres, really along the river bottom, and also some upland pastures that we have there. That's where we do all of our processing and uh, order packing and distribution. How often does the river make you worried? When you say the river bottom, you're right in the valley. Did you get irened? We got irened in a big way, absolutely. Um, we had some fairly major losses during Irene, including all of our hay equipment under eight feet of water and about 300 round bales that went down the Winooski River. Um, along with uh, losing actually parts of our land that border the river. They're just washed away. And having major losses, the little bit of research that I've done, your farm, other farms, having major losses is just like constantly happening, it seems like. Is it just a regular part of it and you kind of have to bake it in? Well, I'd like to think not. <laughs> I think we've had some bad luck and we've also had some tremendously good luck. And it seems like it balances out. Um, Beth and I, we start thinking about all the things that have happened to us on our farm. And we start thinking of ourselves more like the Calamity Farm than, than Maple Wind Farm. Because you took a big whack from Irene, it sounds like. Yeah. I read about a fire, and those seem to be huge, somewhat common in farming. And, right. and, and your experience with it was what? So our experience was that um, the, the farm that we own now down in Richmond, uh, we purchased through a three-year process with the Vermont Land Trust and through conserving our own home farm up in Huntington. And uh, we closed on that in June of 2013, operated there as owners for the first time that season. Um, we'd been leasing there for the previous eight years, but uh, we owned it 
in June 2013 and and uh, January 2014, the 16,000 square foot barn burned to the ground. That sounds large. So you had been already working the land and using the, the barn for many years, and then you owned it, and then pretty quickly within about a year of owning it is when this occurred. About six months. Six yeah. months. Six months later, this is when this occurred. So how did you hear about it? Uh, we received a phone call. I was out doing chores up at the home farm. Received a phone call about 7.30 uh, from neighbors down in Richmond. And also one of the folks that lives up on the farm with us came out and said, I just heard about a barn fire in Richmond. And it, the way they made it sound, it sounded like it was yours. So sure enough, we, we called our friends back down there and they said, well, it's all gone. It's They go quick, I guess. You can see the barn in the winter from I-89, and it was reported from there around 5.15 in the morning, and it was on the ground at 6.30. Is there any confidence in what started it? Very little, um, but, you know, it was an old barn. Um, It had some automated electrical systems. Uh, You know, interestingly enough, we had a big rain event like we just had a few days ago. And there was major flooding out of the Winooski uh, in, in and around Richmond. And the, the day before the fire, I couldn't get there. I literally could not drive to the barn. We didn't have any animals there. No people were there at the time. We had, we had an, an automated sump pump to take water out of the lower level because it was sitting below grade, very, very old barn. And that kicked on and the the inspector the fire inspector and uh, said that it started started in the area of where the sump pump was so we're pretty sure the sump pump came on something shorted and that's what started the fire electricity and water combining poorly yeah not not a good not not a good combination at all so we'll definitely dig more into the day-to-day of raising meat and poultry and growing stuff you said you did this by choice. It wasn't like you were raised in farming. What were you doing before you made that choice? So before we made that choice, my wife and I were uh, owned and operated a, a small adventure travel company, and I was a full-time director of the North Country Camps over in Keysville, New York, which is a summer-long residential wilderness-based camp. And so I would head over there during the summers, but I had a lot of flexibility during the other three seasons. And we were taking skiing, kayaking, and walking trips all over the world for for clients. Um, We'd done that since about 1995 at that point. So in my mind, I start thinking about that group out of Bristol, the Vermont Bicycle Tours, but instead of bicycles, it's lots of other stuff. Right. So for instance, we would go out and and take folks backcountry skiing in the Tetons and up up to the Gaspé in Quebec. We did high altitude mountaineering in Ecuador and Chile and um, and Mexico. We did walking tours to St. John's Virgin Islands and uh, over in Scotland. Before the internet existed, there was no internet at this point. There was a little bit of internet, not much, right? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine right. what the difference, the, the key difference being the internet kind of has gotten rid of a lot of the surprise of going somewhere 
Sure. Because you can just Google the piss out of it before you get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, what do you think it's like running that kind of tour company then compared to somebody trying to do it now? Well, you really had to use the mail. I mean, we, one of the, one of the things that we always did was, you know, we'd create this amazing brochure for our next year, right? And it was a four color kind of magazine style brochure. And we'd send that out to all our contacts and we'd try to develop new, new leads for people who would want to go. And um, by that time we were up and run, had been up and running. Or by the time we stopped, I should say, we were up and running since 95. And we, we actually closed that business in just after 9-11 in 2001. So what, what flipped the switch from adventure travel to let's put down some roots in and around this area and right. farm stuff. All right. So there's actually a fairly big story about what really flipped our switch. So we had this four color brochure and we sold, I don't know, nine or 10 trips. They were all paid for. Most of the flights were purchased. Most of the deposits on where we were staying were all paid. Where was it? Where was it to? So, I mean, these were multiple trips. So we had uh, trips sold to the Rowalling in Nepal. So that, that was a trek, including some trekking peaks in Nepal. We had trips sold to uh, climb Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. We had uh, trips sold to backcountry skiing in Wyoming and sea kayaking off the Baja Peninsula. Were you going to go to all these places personally too, as part of it? So my wife, Beth, and I were were the guys. We had a few people that worked with us really on a contract basis. So for instance, we had we had somebody really knew St. John's extremely well, and so they they would run that trip for us. But in general, so we had all these these we had all these trips sold, and then nine eleven happened. Okay. Right. Three days after nine eleven, uh, I left on a personal trip to the Solokumbu in the Himalayas to climb to climb a peak over there with friends. And uh, the idea was to get acclimatized and then meet our group in Kathmandu afterwards. Um, it was all sold, ready to go. And, you know, of course we thought about not going like most people did. Um, but all of us decided that, that, uh, that the best thing would be to go we had a lot of money invested already, and we really wanted to go. And sure enough, the planes were more or less empty, and and there was nobody in Nepal. But uh, we went on our trip. Um, we tried to climb the 7,000-meter peak that we were aiming for. We got weathered off pretty badly. Um, and when we made the decision to to come off the peak... I went down, found a sat phone, and called my wife, Beth, and said, what's happening? What happened? You know, because I didn't really know. I had no idea. I'd been completely out of contact contact for maybe a five or six weeks at that point. And she said they all, everybody canceled. All the trips? Yep, all the trips. So <laughs> I said, hey, your ticket's bought for. You really should come over anyway The fly you know the you know flying right now can't be any safer i would imagine and it was no problem for us and there's nobody here it's like 
I've heard that Nepal was back in the 60s and 70s. You know, we could go on our own trek, kind of second honeymoon, and let's 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 head up into real walling on our own and have a blast. And she said no. And I said, why? You know, I don't. I really don't think there's any danger from from terrorists or anything like that. I really think it would be um, be a safe trip to do. She said, I just, I just don't feel like going. And I was kind of, I kind of <laughs> was really kind of upset because I really wanted her to come. I thought it would be great. At least it would be the silver lining. We'd be able to go on this trip. And she, it turns out she just didn't want to tell me this on the phone, but um, it turns out she was pregnant. Wow. Wow. And of course, you know, and this is really what happened. I'm not, this isn't just a story, but the sat phone that I was on, she tells me that she's pregnant and it's like, oh my God. And it cuts out and it, I stayed overnight in the town that I was in and it didn't work the next day. And I was like, I've got to get going. And I obviously was heading home at that point. Um, I knew that, you know, she had some health issues around pregnancy. So we were going to, she wasn't going to be able to fly if she was pregnant. So that was, that's what kind of brought us back. And at that point, it didn't make sense to be out in the field, you know, guiding 90 days a, a year. All of a sudden, the world was a little bit different. It needed to stay a little bit more local than it ever had before. Absolutely. So on the flip side, prior to that, we had bought this, bought this farm at the end of our road. Not because we were planning to farm, but because we thought it would be a great space to bring people to kind of a base camp and do adventure activities, you know, work on backcountry skiing or go snowshoeing in the Green Mountains, just as kind of a more local small trip kind of part of our business. And uh, it was a defunct farm. It laid fallow for seven years. Um, but we had been, we had a few animals on it. We had horses. We had a few cattle, we had some pigs, and we were really enjoying that. You had inadvertently laid the groundwork. Yes, laid the groundwork, and there was also some health issues around that. I had been a vegetarian for a long time because I disagreed with how meat was was uh, produced. Not because I didn't agree with eating meat, but just the way it was produced, and kind of our... One of our focuses on the farm was finding a way back to eating meat and uh, doing it the right way in a, in a pasture-raised system. So before we come all the way back to the now, yeah, the year or so, Beth is pregnant with your first, yeah. I assume, at the time. Yeah. That first year or two of going from an adventure travelist, whatever we're going to call that, right. to putting down roots in Vermont and initiating a local farming operation. A lot of folks, whether they should or shouldn't, have in the back of their mind this nostalgic movie, I'm going to move somewhere and start a farm junk in the back of their mind. They're never going to do it. Most of them are never going to do it. I'm never going to do it. But like, it sounds fun. Right. You've done it. Um, even though you had some experience and you inadvertently had bought land to do it with ahead of time, what should people do if they do want to kind of give it a shot? What should their mindset be? I'd say work for another farmer or a volunteer. I'd say volunteer and go live on that farm and really live the lifestyle. Um, our whole journey in farming has been learning and kind of gradually giving in to the true commitment that it takes to be 
a, you know, to be a farmer and actually have that be your living. Um, it definitely goes beyond a job. And the second you think of it as a job, it ceases to become very fun anymore. So, so for us, it was kind of like making that transition that, Hey, this is our life. It's our lifestyle. It's what we do and everything else kind of comes second. You know, it's our family on the farm. And then if we get to go skiing, that's awesome. And it's a blast and we need that. But really our life is this farm. And there are innumerable times that we, you know, that, you know, a normal, normal folks can kind of plan a dinner with friends and, and head off there and, and, you know, make a plan, going to meet at this time and that's going to happen. And for us, uh, many, many, many times the farm has kind of stopped a plan like that. And at first we were really upset about things like that, but the truth is, is that, Animals have a mind of their own, and we are, we're their stewards. We're trying to help them express their essential nature out on the land. And, and uh, if there's a problem, um, that comes first. Learning to accept that as our, and, and really commit to that as our life has been, the, has, has been a long journey for us, but also uh, the thing that's made it as... I don't even know what the word would be. I, it, it's made it as um, kind of a, a, as deep a commitment as it needs to be. So You're the fourth thing on the food chain. The animals, the vegetables, the weather, and then you get to pick what you want to do. After those three things, pick first. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we are, we're definitely low on the totem pole when it comes to that. So here in Waterbury, the Wallace Fire was big news in the last year. My daughter used to take tours there with her school. They did a fundraiser. We watched it burn from across the valley. Um, I would imagine that kind of hit this community a lot of ways that when your barn went down, hit Richmond. When you heard about the Wallace fire, when you heard about the Pete's Greens fire, what's the first thoughts that go through your head having gone through it yourself? Well, Pete's Greens came before us. Okay. And we knew those folks pretty well. Um, and we're support, certainly supporters of their recovery uh, in a small way very small way um they've had they had and and uh, continue to receive tremendous support from their community and really from the whole state of vermont um and uh, you know when when we had our barn fire they were among the first folks to contact us and offer assistance and um and really help us think about what the next step was and we just had absolutely tremendous community support. And so, you know, all we can do when, you know, when another farm goes through this is to offer our support in any way we can. Um, we're not in a position to do a tremendous amount of financial support, but, uh, you know, there are other ways that we can, if, if only just offering you know, our condolences and offering any advice that we had, that we have from our personal experience. What did you learn? I read something about insurance. Oh, yes. Well, and Pete's Greens went through the same thing. We were, for lack of a less cliched term, we were woefully uninsured or poorly insured, I should say. And when we bought 
you know, when we closed on this property, we had an agent that walked through the barn, took her about five minutes, maybe 10. And of course, we were interested in saving money, but she made no, she really made no strong suggestions about what we really should cover. It was an old barn. The replacement cost would be, you know, astronomical in terms of insurance. Um, but there was nothing, uh, there was no real discussion. She walked through, we looked at a few things. At the time, you know, this is right when we closed, we didn't have any stuff in there. We had no product in there. We had no dry storage in there. We had no, um, none of all the equipment that we stored in there. Long story short, we actually, <laughs> when, when, I, when I looked at the insurance policy after the fire, what I realized is that we had insured that building for $8 a square foot. And that was... Um, and probably nothing for contents. And we had a little bit for contents because we had insurance on our processing uh, uh on our poultry processing space, which is actually in a shipping container. So we had, so we had, we had a little bit on contents, not very much. And there was nothing, you know, we really had nothing in terms of the ability to rebuild what we actually used the insurance money for, which was a very small amount was to bring in temporary infrastructure so we could keep, keep on farming through the next season. In your 20 years, have you ever had a moment where you almost moved on, did something else? Oh, that was the moment. Okay. Absolutely was the moment. So, yes, we were in shock. Um, we had just bought this property and had plans to expand. The barn itself was a huge part of that. Uh, we had brooding space for our chicks. We had thousands of square feet of dry storage. We had all of our uh, cold storage in there, including including freezers and walk-in cooler. We had a small farm store. We had a heated office, you know, with computers and internet and all that stuff. We had a bathroom, which, believe it or not, is a big deal on a, on a farm that doesn't have its own house. So we didn't have a house on the farm and still don't. This was the home base. This was the home base. That's right. And... You need all that stuff to actually operate a, a poultry processing plant that is inspected by the USDA. And uh, so, yes, it was very much an existential crisis for us. And um, we took every bit of three months. I actually, I'm, I applied for jobs. I, I, you know, one of my previous... My careers was as a classroom teacher, so I applied for jobs, um, looked into actually moving back out to Wyoming, which is where my wife and I met. So it was a lot of soul searching and a lot of uh, a lot of kind of high stress <laughs> um, planning for for either eventuality. And and uh, I think the reason that we turned back towards farming. We certainly loved doing it, and and we were really excited about the next chapter after buying this second farm down in, in, in Richmond. We were really excited about that. Was the fact that so many people in the surrounding community just came forward to support us. 
David Zuckerman and his wife, Rachel Nesbitt, um, did a fundraiser within the first week in Heinsberg that raised $10,000 for our farm. Um, we had literally hundreds of small donations just come in with no strings attached, whether we went on farming or not. Uh, and we had lots of not-for-profit organizations offer, offer help with business planning, there are some grant funds out there, emergency grant funds. Pete's Greens offers, offered us a very low interest loan. Um, and there were other entities in Vermont that did the same. We got a note from the governor saying, we hope you'll continue. How old were your kids at this point? So my son was 11 and my daughter was nine. Did they have a say in it when you guys were kind of deciding what to do? Were they, were they pulling any direction? You know, we mentioned that that this is a there's a possibility we might not farm anymore, and they were just the thought about moving away from the farm was a major major stress point for them. So they were dead set against moving away. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, in terms of actual the actual you know not farming anymore, I think they were a little ambivalent about that. They see. You know, they see through us and they know through being with us and actually helping us on the farm that it's not an easy life. So I don't think they would have been terribly upset if we stopped farming commercially, but they would have been really upset if we left the farm. They really love the land up there. Well, you weren't raised in a farming family, I don't think, but you're raising your kids in a farming family. Are they going to be farmers? Well, if you ask them right now, almost definitely not. Okay. Um, but... They're 14 and 16 now, and they're actively separating the, their identities from us, <laughs> though they're both great skiers and they love to be outdoors. Uh, I just remember with my own experience, I didn't really start thinking my parents were very smart again and you know, until I was more in my mid-20s. So I don't know. It's hard to know that if, if I'm still farming it, it when my kids get into their mid-20s and they start really thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, what'll happen? So the, the jury is out as it should be at this point. The jury is out as it should be, and there's really no pressure from us to do that. Um, I want them to do what they love. So The now. Let's assume we haven't had any major losses. We're done talking about losses. Oh, really? I hope so. Because there's lots more. <laughs> Unless there's a lot more. Okay, maybe. Hopefully not. There's, there, it, we're just, there's a litany. But we... Um, we have set ourselves up for res resiliency, especially after the barn fire. So it's easy to, it's easier to come back. Yeah. The challenge on paper, figuring out and setting up distribution channels for success or actually creating the products successfully, the actual act of farming and delivering a good product to the market or the actual process of figuring out where you're going to put it in the market. What's a bigger challenge? Definitely on the marketing and distribution side. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not saying that production is easy. It's not. But I think that that's where, certainly where most farmers kind of land in terms of their skill set. That certainly was where we were. Um, uh, I felt, uh, certainly made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, when we first got started, we didn't make the highest quality product that, that I wanted to make. Um, but we're fairly settled in how to do that now. And the real challenge 
is connecting with those people who really want and desire and need our product out in the, in the marketplace. What's your latest big win where you were just high five and we got this account? Well, there's two things. First of all, um, starting to work with UVM Medical Center was huge. They've been a terrific partner of ours. Uh, City Market, again, another big partner of ours and have actually helped us build infrastructure that helps us be better farmers. Um, and they're committed to buying from us. Um, and then um, we felt, at least on the wholesale side at our size, we needed to go out of state at least uh, in the last few years when we've we've grown to a certain size. Uh, we're working with a large kind of high-end internet marketing group down in, in the Boston area called Walden Local Meats. And so we sell, we sell a lot of, lot of product into that system. Can I get Maple Wind Farm products where along Route 100 near my house? Anywhere? Um, Mihurans during the summer. Okay. We are in Pete's Green's Market as well. Uh, we are at City Market in Burlington. So we're a little bit more on the, I guess we're, we'd be more on that side of things up in Chittenden County. Um, we're in a, quite a few restaurants in Burlington. Um, we do get down to Waterbury. We used to have eggs in the Waterbury market, and that hasn't been the case for a few years now. Not sure why that happened. I will say this, that our current focus and where we're really putting all of our energy is reconnecting with people who want to buy directly from the farm. So CSA kind of, kind of thing? Well, we have, we have a small, uh, sm- small meat CSA, but we're... We're really kind of embarking on an email marketing campaign and really trying to develop trust and build um, and build a clientele that wants to wants to buy directly from the farm. And uh, really excited about that. It's developing relationships with those people that kind of makes this worth doing for us. Um, gets me up in the morning. I wonder if you can parlay, and I'm going to parlay that topic into who are you skiing with, where are you skiing, how did Matt Charles send you to me as a skier? Well, we live, you know, just four miles from Mad River Glen, so skied there and taught there for for many years. I don't teach there currently. I do teach for PSIA, Professional Ski Instructors of America, as an examiner for the Telemark division of that. So that's how I know Matt Charles. I've also been a lifelong backcountry skier, used to guide skiing out in the Tetons. Now I'm skiing with family and friends here in Vermont in the backcountry, you know, just local friends in, in Huntington up on Camel's Hump and and uh, right out my back, backyard up, up to Huntington Gap. Um, there's great backcountry skiing up there. And love skiing at Mad River, love the love the kind of the retro feel there and the fact that it can be extremely busy there, but once you get on the mountain it feels almost feels like you're in the backcountry. And then every year my family and I head out to head back out to Wyoming because we love that place so much. Where specifically? Uh, luckily, before Beth and I left, uh, we kind of got our families together and bought a little one-acre piece of ground out in Wilson, Wyoming, just outside of Jackson. And as a as a group, we built a built a small house there 
it's a little side business. We make money through Airbnb doing that. And then we carve out a few weeks in February and March to head back out there. But when I go there, I might ride lifts one day out of 14 when we head out. So it's all, for me, it's about the backcountry. I have, you know, over 2,000 days in the Teton backcountry. Um, as a guide back in the day when I lived out there as kind of a more of a like a ski bum, lots of lots of lots of days just hanging out in the backcountry where every turn is worth 10 at the ski area in my opinion yeah no argument there yeah (laughs) but you hinted at that there's one other way that the farm and skiing kind of cross paths and it's more local than wyoming right yeah so we do have an on-farm yurt and uh in the winter almost every weekend in the winter that yurt is full is it airbnb are you renting it out we do rent it. Ends up being something like $140 with tax for ten for up to 10 people. It sleeps 10. It's just a 24-foot diameter yurt. It's on the farm, but about a maybe a quarter mile away from the barnyard up on the edge of the forest. And we back up against the Camel's Hump State Forest. And this is in Huntington, not at the Richmond site, but in Huntington. So we back up against Camel's Hump State Forest. It's at 1,600 feet of elevation. There's great kind of light backcountry scheme from there. And also you can head up and get some decent turns from there as well. Um, and it's there's often too much snow to actually drive a vehicle up there. So we, we never let groups actually drive vehicles up there. They have to get their stuff up there on their own but um, or, or human-powered. Uh, when there's too much snow, I ski up to flip the yurt from one group to the next. Seriously, multi-purpose property. Yeah. What do you and Beth disagree about the most? On the farm or off the farm? Well, I'll say this, that I am the big picture guy, right? I'm the vision person. I've got big ideas all the time. And um, Beth is much more detail-focused. And so I'll I'll come up with my next big idea, and she'll say, yeah, but how are we going to, you know, what are the nuts and bulls? How do we actually make that happen? So that's where we kind of get into it a bit. You know, every year, I think for many farms, certainly is true for us, each season we have to reevaluate, look at our enterprises and look at look at our finances and decide whether we can actually do this the next season. And this is the time of year that we do that. And I'll say that my you know, heading out into the backcountry on skis is one of the best ways that I recover, rejuvenate, and get my head right for making those decisions. Um, love the skiing, but I also love the benefit of of clearing my head and getting my body kind of moving and 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 uh, getting in the right space to make those really important decisions. And those decisions are, what are we going to produce this year? What are we going to stop maybe producing that hasn't done well? I mean, what's an example of things that maybe did well for a while that you decided to no longer do? Well, we've been growing organic vegetables for 15 years, and I didn't mention that as part of our farm introduction at the beginning of this because we just made the decision to not do vegetables. We actually made money doing vegetables last year, but we have a wide array of enterprises on our farm. And we're just finding that vegetables kind of the the stepchild that never gets any attention. 
Um, and that's in part because you can put incredible amount of work in vegetables and get the same result as if you did put less work into it in some cases. You know, we've been doing it for a long time. It's been marginally successful. And now uh, we've just decided that we don't have the headspace to do it justice. Like if that's what we did and that was our focus, I think we could do it very well. There are a lot of people in this state that do it extremely well, a lot better than we do. And uh, we just felt like we should refocus and get laser focused on the things that we do, the thing that, that we've always done better than anything else, and that is raising livestock on pasture. You have to just constantly reassess what are your strengths and how can you focus on them. Exactly. And, you know, the reason that we wanted to do vegetables was to close the loop, right? You know, animals bring so much fertility to the soil and the ground, and that allows things to grow really well. We certainly leveraged that to grow really high quality vegetables for many years. And we wanted to close that loop so that that fertility was making another product that we could sell. Are you going to start selling your earth product? No, I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll do that. I think we're just going to focus on building really high quality soil, have the forage come up and then use that to grow great proteins on pasture. When's the last time you're on your skis from this moment right now? Probably a week ago. I <laughs> last time it was worth it. Last time it was worth it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I missed this last big storm. Um, I was down in Texas at the professional pasture poultry conference, which was awesome and a great thing to do. But I was bumming that it was, you know, that it snowed 24 inches up in our area. Let's jump into a thing that, uh, that we do every time here, the lightning round. If you've heard a podcast or two, you know what this is going to be about. So quick, one word answers as best you can. You ready? Sure. What should the state house do for farmers in Vermont right now? Market the new kind of the new sustainable farm ethic here in Vermont. And they do, but it's, we really need to differentiate from other states because things are happening here that aren't happening anywhere else in the country. If you could eradicate one pest, what would it be? I, you know, we have rats get into our brooders. I'd love I don't want to eradicate rats, but I want them to leave us alone. I also want foxes and coyotes and raccoons and um, and we think bobcats to quit jumping into our pasture, you know, our pasture poultry paddocks and killing birds. We do have a we do have livestock guard dogs, but not enough to go around. So we have yeah so. Predators. If you need the one word, it would be predators. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what is Beth always right about? Oh, boy. You can't say everything just to please her. <laughs> um, she's always right about how to treat people. What's your favorite piece of equipment that you use on the farm? Temporary fence reels. I mean, that's a hard one. You know, we do use tractors, but we try everything we can to avoid using them. And what and we we use temporary fencing to move our animals every day onto new grass. And so reel and pigtail posts, we can we can move cows every day and it takes me about fifteen minutes to move up to hundred and twenty animals 
every day. Biggest public misconception about farming? That, uh, I, what's the biggest? I think that farmers, that most farmers are polluters. I think f- for many people, they see them as dirty places. And some are and some aren't is the answer to what you're saying? Well, I think many, if not most, aren't. And there are, some, you know, like in any industry, there are bad actors. But I think most farms, I think most farmers are really invested in taking care of the land and the water and the air around them. And everything you're producing is staying domestically, right? You're not trading with any internationals? Not at all. Okay. Yeah. So you don't get any of that Trump farm handout? Not at all. No, (laughs) there's nothing about that. (laughs) Good. We don't need to talk about him. Well, you know, and and I think when people, I won't say no farms, but there's essentially very few, if any, farms in Vermont that are that are heavily involved in agribusiness, right. you know? And it, it, they're, they're two different things, right? They're I mean, really two different things. Farming on your scale compared to agribiz industrial scale. Right. So we are, it's not that we're not affected by that, we are. And there's a lot of greenwashing out there. There, You know, we just, uh, on a friend's website, we just saw this phrase, which was, you know, or are you sick of buying really good chicken, or excuse me, of buying factory farm chicken with a really fancy label um, only to find out that it's factory farmed, right? Um, We were, and that's why we started our business, you know? And that's really, I mean, that kind of hits it in a nutshell, right? That we, I was sick of the way big agribusiness was was making food and that's why I got got started in farming. Also really, we've always been interested, even though think people think of us being a really big operation now we're we're not we're you know our big enterprise is broiler chickens and we produce 20,000 broiler chickens that sounds a lot sounds like a lot right what makes a chicken a broiler chicken um it's a chicken for meat um it's usually a certain breed that grows very quickly and develops you know when people think of chicken they think of you know f- fairly large breast meat sections and a robust uh, legs and thighs and all that if you were to just take a for instance just a laying hen off the uh, out of your flock and process it and then cook it up it would not be the chicken that people think of as chicken uh, in the United States and um, so broilers are they're actually kind of a size range. That's kind of where we're at. So they're, you know, they grow to about four or four and a half pounds in eight weeks and they're really tender. It's a fairly quick turnaround for us, but so we grow 20,000 and kind of the next farm over that the, the, the other farm that people really know about in the state is Misty Knoll and they do 250,000. Very, very different. Yeah. We're, we raise on pasture. We move daily to new grass. They raise in a very clean, nicely appointed barn with, you know, chickens that can free roam. And, but they just do, you know, we do maybe a thousand a week during our season and they do 5,000 a week. So if folks want to kind of touch and feel the product and also maybe meet 
your family, your team, what have you, you do you guys have kind of a go-to farmer's market that you're at often in the summertime, or is it pretty much exclusively through distributors? No, we're at Bur- Burlington Farmer's Market every Saturday, including through the winter. It's not every Saturday through the winter. It's it's kind of two Saturdays a month. And then we also do a pop-up farmer's market at our Richmond barn, the new barn. Not the <laughs> We did rebuild after the after the barn fire. Um, and, uh, a lot of people are contacting us and coming to the farm and just picking up product. We don't have a farm store. That might be something we do at some point, but it's our goal to kind of reconnect with, with people who are local and really get to know them as people and have them know us. And for more information, what's your website? Maplewindfarm.com. You guys are probably on Instagram or something. We're on Instagram, absolutely. All that stuff. Yeah. Have you ever, and if so, when, just kind of bailed on what you had to do at the farm one day because it was a powder day? Absolutely. So that does happen. That does happen, but it, it's more in the form of, okay, I know it's going to be a big day tomorrow. I'm going to get up at five in the morning. I'm going to go out and take care of everything I need to do. A couple of hours of work. And then I'm going to come back in, get breakfast, and head head to the mountain or head out into the backcountry. So 75% of the skiing that I do any in any given year is in the backcountry, and um, I'm more likely to go in that direction. I also, uh, Mickey Stone and I, Mickey Stone is the, is the director of our, of our education team for Telemark at PSIA. We developed a, a backcountry accreditation program for backcountry and in that six-day course we do an avalanche 100 level course we look at navigation as a skill so map and compass and uh and and getting out there and finding your way back and and you know equipment group dynamics wilderness leadership and all that kind of stuff so i'm, I'm way into that and i keep my toe in the water right of guiding and and leading by teaching those courses as kind of a sideline during the winter and then just getting out there myself with my friends and family members. Um, This year, um, I'd been bragging about all the great times we've been having out in Wyoming all these years. Every year since Beth and I left in 95, we've been back out there for, for at least a week, if not more, in the wintertime. And um, so this year I decided, though, all, all the farm friends that we have here in the state, I decided to do a Farmers in the Tetons trip um, with the idea of just, you know, I talked to the family, free place to stay. We pull together on food, probably bring a lot of our food with us, or at least the essential items, like we always bring, you know, a bag of meat out there with us and things like that. And you just have to get yourself out there, bring your gear, and we'll ski backcountry. Believe it or not, you know, like half a dozen folks have taken me up on it, and we're we're heading out there uh, in mid-February to, you know, to ski the backcountry of the Tetons. You finally created the farming backcountry skiing utopia. Really excited uh, just to share, you know, I just love sharing the resource with all those folks. And anyone who wants to get more information on the the classes that you mentioned, because I do hear a lot of folks asking about avalanche courses in Vermont, hard to find, but do exist. If they want more information about the one you mentioned, they should do what? 
go to PSIAE.org, and it's a it's a professional ski instructors Eastern Division.org. And we have a, you know, you can join PSIA or you can also take the course as a, as somebody who's not a member. It's obviously cheaper as a member. Um, and, you know, the course is ostensibly for ski instructors that are maybe thinking about taking groups into the side country or they have a backcountry goal themselves. Um, but it's really for anybody who's interested in backcountry skiing. All right. And we'll see you out there in the Camel's Hump Wilderness here shortly, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thanks for coming by. Hey, you bet. And it's rant time, courtesy of the pod voicemail. I lived in my old crappy 1990 Ford conversion van all last winter while working at Stowe. And one thing that really grinded my gears was I feel like they just made me park in the most ridiculous places, kind of hide me away because my van was old and shitty. Meanwhile, all these people in their sprinters and their souped-up rigs uh, or even ski teams in their vans, which are the same size as my van, you know, got to park wherever they pleased. And um, before the whole Vail thing, they had the partnership with Mercedes, so I kind of thought, hey, I should rip off this Ford badge and put a Mercedes badge on, then I get preferred parking wherever the hell I wanted. But um happy to say that I'm over at Sugarbush now, and uh, the vibes, especially towards van life and van living, are hell of a lot better over here. And uh, just really happy to be in the Mad River Valley and listening to your podcast a bunch and really appreciate all the good reporting you're doing on local shit that matters to the ski industry. So keep up good work. And hopefully all those van life people out there don't get too much hassle at sell when they're trying to park their shitty old rigs. All right. Have a good one. Your rant can be the next rant. Get your proclamation or question into a future pod by calling 802-560-5003 and letting her rip. Soon, my next Xander Bay Depth column will pop out on vtskiandride.com. We're helping each other out. Sign up for free digital subscriptions to Vermont Ski and Ride magazine at vtskiandride.com and look for their print copies at your local outdoor retailer, bars, coffee shops, and such. Shout out to Adam Levy. His rendition of West LA Fade Away has been our theme music since 2015. Follow the pod at Wintry Mixcast on Twitter and Instagram and tag us up if you think of good podcast guests. A listener made this one happen. Thank you, Matt. And yeah, if you want some brand new pod stickers, hit up patreon.com slash Wintry Mixcast to join the supporters club. I'm donating our pooled spare change and we're about a third of the way to our first donation dig it. Goodbye. The Wallace Fire. So here in Waterbury, obviously, I don't know what it was, about a year ago now, maybe.
when you first heard of that, another barn, another kind of iconic thing, we could see it right across the hill because we can see Blush Hill from, from my house. My daughter had the fundraiser at school. She had been gone on tours there a whole bunch. So we had at least some on-site c- connection to the place. So my question is whether it's the Wallace Farm. I think Pete's Greens had a big fire too. Is there a, there's almost like a, a farming alumni who've been through big fires. Uh, is, I'm not sure what I'm, let me, re, I'm going to use my little get out of jail free card and ask this differently again. Okay. I assume you're close to, or maybe have some participation in the camel's hump challenge. Do you cross paths with that group of people much? Absolutely. Um, I have done the challenge a couple of times and enjoyed it. Uh, that's right in kind of my, that that's where I head up into do a lot of my backcountry skiing from home. 